Welcome to the Wine Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Heschuk. The Wine Beat is an exploration of the world in search of the most compelling wines that the planet has to offer. We're looking for wines from special places where the winemaker, the viticulturalist, and that wine region have a unique story to tell. What we're trying to convey is the extraordinary value that we can unearth by scouring the world's myriad great winemaking regions in search of these special stories. This episode is an exploration of the wine world, but with a twist. We're going to explore the history of wine with my friend, Anna Dimitriadis, of the My Cava Wine Store in Thessaloniki, Greece. Thessaloniki is Greece's second city, located in the north near some of the best wine regions in Greece. Anna is a very accomplished wine educator, and she was very kind to put together this short history of Greece's role as the epicenter of the origin of modern winemaking. Now, Greece may not be the birthplace of wine, and it may in some ways not even be the cradle of wine, but it is the true original home where winemaking grew up and where wine culture grew up and where wine commerce grew up. So here's Anna Dimitriadis, but just before we get started, let me uh, note the special theme music at the beginning and the end of this podcast. Um, Hope you like it. It was recorded live at the home of Kostas Kalafatis. Kostas is one of Greece's great rumbetica guitar players. Uh, He lives in the island of Skopelos, and he was kind enough to have me over to record this music. So thank you to both Kostas and Anna for having me over to record the segments of this podcast. Uh, And stay tuned in a future episode, which is going to be a tour of Greece, a review of various facets of Greek winemaking. We're going to have more music from Kostas, uh, a little bit more uh, about Greek wine, some of the great new winemakers of Greece from, from Anna. So that's coming up in a future podcast. But here we go. Craig, it's a pleasure to have you at my cava. Yamas. Yamas. <laughs> so we're having Mavrotragano um, by Hadzidakis Estate. Uh, it's a really um, rare grape, red grape from Sandorini. Mm, and it's delicious. This wine is delicious. It's very interesting. It, um, it's very aromatic. It's very particular. You can find aromas of black fruit, of chocolate, of coffee. This is still a young wine. This wine will age a long time. This is a 2014 Mavrotragano. Yeah. But it's still a young wine. Mm-hmm. Drinks nicely now. It does, it does, but it also matures nicely. It, uh, it could go for another five, at least five years, easily. It's an ancient grape, actually, and uh, there have been lots and lots of experimentation going on on the vineyard and on the winery as well. Uh, it came back into scene during the last 15 years, and uh, the first modern vinification was in 1997 by Hadzidakis Estate. So Trigono was not being produced in a sort of a commercial way as, as a wine before 1997? Yeah, they, it, it existed maybe like, um, you know, local, really tiny vinifications, but not in a commercial, commercial scale. Very cool. Um, another special wine from Santorini. I mean, Santorini is is now well known for a Sirtico and the white wine side. 
Uh, Mavro Dragono is the um, signature red. Yeah, you could say so. It's a signature red. It's not very well known yet, but uh, from what we have seen so far, it's taken it's taken part in lots of national and international wine competitions, gaining lots of credits and um, recognition. I think it's a wonderful, rare grape coming from antiquity to this day. Cool. Very cool. It is rare, though. I mean, there's a very small production, so it's going to be hard to find... Uh, yeah, outside I'm, of Greece, do I'm you think? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure how exports are going because the it's uh, you know the vineyard's really small, a uh, hundred stremata, like zero point four acres, something yeah, like that. Something like that. Yeah. We'll see that. We'll check this later on. Um, but uh, if you find it, um, you should enjoy it. Yeah, something something very unusual and very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about wine history. Yeah, why not? (laughs) So let's jump in and let's talk about wine history. Good, yeah. Well, you're in the right place because, uh, you know, wine wasn't actually discovered in Greece, but one could say that Greece, apart from the cradle of civilization, has been also the cradle of wine civilization as well. Right. And I'm going to prove it to you right uh, right (laughs) (laughs) in the next few moments. So uh, let's take things from the beginning. Uh, Let's get started by the historical data. So, so far archaeologists have uh, traced the origin of wine back in prehistoric times. Um, Its invention has been recorded mainly by myths and tales. Nevertheless, the archaeological research situates the beginning of winemaking in the Neolithic era between 9,000 and 4,000 BC at Zagros mountain range in modern-day Armenia and North Iran. Uh, If you go back to the Bible as well, uh, when the flood was over and Noah came out of the ark, he planted vine on that same mountain. So uh, historical and archaeological scientific evidence kind of coincides with the myth and tale. What's in the Bible? Okay, very Um, cool. It is. <laughs> it is quite cool. Noah was busy making a vineyard in, in, in the place where wine was, uh, was, was maybe first made. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's where it all started. Then it spread uh, towards the, uh, the west, towards Greece and Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and also south through Levante area, which... Um, Lebanon. Uh, yeah, yeah, like Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. Mm. And through there to Egypt, where, where we have these magnificent depictions of uh, wine growing and wine harvesting inside the uh, pharaoh's tombs in the pyramids. They have uh, really nice uh, depictions of those scenes. And hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics in and this ca- and the paintings in the tombs. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was quite uh, quite a thing wine for ancient Egypt. I mean, uh, wine used to be the um, the drink of the elite. It was the drink of the kings, and uh, it was not only the the drink that accompanied their lives, but also their deaths, because the pharaohs used to get buried with amphorae uh, inside the pyramids as well. An interesting historic um, trivia is that there are only two names mentioned in the pharaoh's tomb. One is of the pharaoh, (laughs) 
And the, sequel, the second the one maker? is the winemaker, yeah, oh, because okay. it appeared on the amphorae that were buried with him. So. <laughs> oh, you can find the name of the winemaker because his name is on the amphora. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's really so, interesting. So, uh, yeah, two names cool. mentioned. Yeah, that's cool. But uh, the democratization of wine actually took place in ancient Greece. And now that's what we're here to talk about right now. Um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, vine has been cultivated since 2500 BC. Uh, probably it was in Greece by that time as well. Um, the fact that the vine was not an indigenous plant in Greece, but was kind of imported later on, was uh, depicted by Hellenic myths, according to which the gods, the older gods, the Olympian gods, dragged nectar, while wine was destined for mortals. Now, talking... Well, nectar is, is, is sort of a mythical drink, is it? Well, nectar, uh, a bit of the etymology. Nectar, it means something that you drink and um, kills death, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very... <laughs> uh, the thing that you drink, it makes you Can immortal. Can you still find that in Greece? Uh, nectar? <laughs> <laughs> Not in that. <laughs> well, well, actually, uh, the Olympian gods drank the nectar and uh, f um, fed on ambrosia. Ambrosia. Right. So you got these two things. And um, I'm not sure, but, you know, archaeologists say that nectar maybe was kind of a hydromeli, you know, like... From he, honey? Yeah. Well, of course, it did not exist because the Olympian gods did not exist. But, I mean, kind of a drink, that, trying to, to match it with a drink, they say maybe it was something like hydromeli. Uh, and nectar was reserved for the gods, while wine was their gift to the mortals. It's not like in Egypt that, you know, wine was reserved for the elite and only for the kings. In so that's Greece. why you use the word democratization of wine, yeah. because the gods said that it was okay for the humans to drink wine. They gave it to the humans to drink. Exactly. As it opposed to being gift. just saved for the, the, no, no, no. the hyper-elite people. Or for whatever. everybody. Ah, for, okay. Yeah, it was for everybody. Um, the thing is that um, actually the wine god, because the Greeks had their own wine god, Dionysos, uh, this one was the latter to be added to the Olympian 12 gods of Olympus. Uh, he said to have arrived from the east, much like the vine itself. Okay. Right? Um, after a lot, a lot of adventures, so uh, you've got this, uh, you've got this actual path of the plant, you know, the grape arriving from the east to the west. You've got it depicted on the uh, myth of the Onsus as well. Of this adventuring god who's mm -hmm. who's come from the east and. Right. Oh, he's the embodiment of the of the vine itself. Yes. Yeah, you could say that. Also, he was a bit different in his manners. He he's usually depicted as a young man, um, dressed in Eastern clothes, not typically Greek clothes. Really. And he's got feminine ways. Okay. Well, that's the way they saw him, and uh, he was. Um, he, was a, he was a bit of a flamboyant character 
Is that right? He was. You know, uh, there are so many things. I guess he written. would be if he's the god of wine. He's obviously going to be a bit on the flamboyant side. He was. He was festive, uh, but he was very austere too. I mean, with people that overdid it or who totally um, abstinated from wine. Mm-hmm. Abstained, Abstained, yeah, yeah sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, who abstained from wine. He was, um, you had to find the middle path in order to be uh, safe. To be in his favor. Mm-hmm, oh. yeah. Um, moderation. Moderation in all its, uh, yeah, in all its glory. <laughs> That's the, the Greek way, moderation. It's the only way to, you know, to lead you to the truth. And he came as a god, he came later. He was a later addition to the he pantheon of gods. Yeah, exactly. He was a later addition to the uh, pantheon of gods. He also has, uh, there is this very interesting uh, myth about his um, birth too. I don't know if you would be interested in hearing this of as course. well. So uh, he was um, the son of a mortal princess, Semele. She was the princess of uh, Thebes. And um, Zeus, the father of the gods, fell in love with Semele. And uh, they became a couple. But then his uh, lawful wife uh, found out, Hera, and she got really jealous and she decided to uh, uh, avenge. So he, she disguised herself into an old lady and she came close to Semele. And she told her that, you know, Zeus doesn't really love you because if he did, he would show himself before you in all his divine glory. Semele thought that the old lady was right. So she decided to ask of him this favor, that he would present himself in all his divine glory before her. He tried to dissuade her. She did not listen. She made him oath to her that he would do it. Eventually he did, but she was mortal and she could not um, withstand, you know, all the thunders and the clouds and everything. So she got burned at sight but at that moment, she was pregnant to Dionysus. Zeus, of course, knew that she was pregnant to Dionysus because he, you know, he was a god and he knew everything. And what he did, he could not save the mother, but he tried to save the son. So he took him out of her womb and he sawed the, um, the embryo on his thigh so that he would complete you know, the, 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 the remaining three months. Oh, he finished the gestation, the gestation of Dionysus as a... Right. So he, he was six months in his mother's womb, and then the rest three in his father's thigh. And once the time came, he sprang out of his father's thigh. Pretty much like the vines, the new sprouts, you know, spring out of the vine, which modern-day uh, viticultural people call it the knee. In France, also they call you know the the, the vine tree uh, leg. Yeah. You know how many legs you have, how many pied in, in French. So it, it's you know if you have this picture in your in your mind, you've got the um, nearly burnt, let's say, leg of the vine and the new uh, sprout springing out from the knee. So it's it's really you know it's. That's fascinating. I mean that's. It is astounding how these myths develop and how they mm-hmm. correlate to uh, to the real world, I guess. I mean, once you put it together like that. And, and I guess it talks to how important the vine was, that the, the, the myths, some of the most important myths around the gods themselves would be bound up with the, 
with Dionysus and the vine. Yeah, you've got it there, right there. I mean, they saw that wine was somewhere between the earth and the sky. So Dionysus himself is a product of, you know, a mortal mother and divine father. So halfway to the sky. (laughs) So interesting. Yeah, it is. It's deep. It's deep. It's, It's deeper than you think because... Some, you know, people that study religion say that Dionysus was uh, really a precursor to Christ because, you know, it's ringing a bell, a mortal, a mortal mother with a divine father and standing uh, for all those that are depressed and oppressed, standing for women, standing for slaves. Well, it all, you know, mixes and blends together. I get it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That sounds like another podcast right there. <laughs> Might be getting away from wine and getting into yeah. religion. Philosophy. Yeah, philosophy. <laughs> All right, cool. So um, I keep interrupting you. Carry on. What, where were we? We were talking about Dionysus and his... Yeah, well, uh, actually, we were talking about the vine coming from the east to the west. Um, up until it reached uh, Greece, it was reserved, wine was reserved for the elites of each place. And uh, it, its production was really mediocre, I would say. And its quality was really mediocre, I would also add. But uh, once it reached Greece, uh, there, there have been many technological advances taking place. And uh, that's why we're talking about Greece being the actual home of modern winemaking. This is what I find fascinating, right? You have a very ancient history of winemaking. Um, because grapes can automatically ferment by themselves, it sort of it would be easy to invent wine in the first place. But to perfect it with technology was the big leap forward, I guess. Especially if you're talking about democratization and making it available for the people, you have to be able to produce it. Yeah, with uh, technology exactly. and with quantities. It is. It is people they, uh, they 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 loved it. Of course, you know the climate in the terrain of continental Greece in the islands was in. Uh, continues to be quite suitable for vine cultivation and uh, of course all these climatic conditions helped that by the uh, 7th century vine growing was already you know very spread around Uh, beginnings in Arcadia in Peloponnese and Sparta and then the rest of the Peloponnese and then to Attica Athens Um, so uh, with all this, can we can you trace that for me again? Because I I I'd like to try to follow that. It, it arrived from the east. From the east, yeah. Uh, well, the the main the main production sites, the first ones, as we have it from archaeological evidence so far, was in in Peloponnese, Arcadia. Okay, so the south of Greece. The south of Greece, yeah. So it didn't tr- so much travel down from the north of Greece. Well, it did, it did, but we don't have, you know, the myths are all around Athens. Well, there are some myths traced in, in, in Thrace too. I mean, we've got the uh, the root of the Onsos coming from Thrace, coming down Macedonia, and then central Greece, and to Peloponnese, and to Athens. Uh, th- there are several, you know, um, pieces. Uh, I think I get it. So uh, the vine, you know, and cultivation of the vine and maybe maybe making a rudimentary wine would have come down from the north, would have spread down from the north. But then the technological advances and the quality 
would have started in the Peloponnese and then in the Attica region. We could say that, but still, we we can never be sure. Okay. Because you know, it's it's in the in the verge of myth and truth. It's it's very early on, and we don't have that many traces. I mean, uh, there are some historical. Let's say um, we have some hard facts, like for example, we've got legislation written on marble plagues in Thassos Island, for example, that regulate commerce. They regulate packaging, kind of, and they they constitute laws against um, uh, falsification of wines. Well, these are hard facts, but we don't have, you know, as many as to constitute the actual wine route from the east. I mean, it maybe came with, uh, with uh, ships from, from the south to, to the north. Okay. Uh, you don't know. Yeah. That's, but Dionysus was all over the place. I mean, he visited every, every, every town, has a myth about, you know, uh, something that happened <laughs> at some point. And it's all bound <laughs> up with wine. And, yeah. And, uh, and once the, the, the normal people in society were drinking wine, then it would have spread quickly and it would have been popping up, wine production would have been popping up in, in different places. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, would you like to say something more about how scientific Greeks were with wine? I, I, I think that's that's really important for us to cover. I mean, the um, the relationship with the gods is really cool, and the fact that it kind of opened the way for normal people to drink wine. But then you need the capability to produce wine in quantities and 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 to make it available to the population. So, I think the technological advances are so important. Yeah, well, uh, they were, um, I, well, I have to explain how they did it before and what was new from a, a point onwards. You know that vine um, is, a, is a plant that it's, it can climb on, on, other, on other plants, for example, on its way trying to find the sun. Uh, so in, in the ancient times, they, they used to have vines planted next to trees, um, and that's how they cultivated it. But but Greeks uh, actually thought that they could uh, they could cultivate wines in rows, uh, trellised on stakes, rather than having trees, uh, as they did up until then. And by by using this kind of trellising system, they managed not only to cultivate more plants in the same place thus increasing production, of course, but also they greatly facilitated the process of harvesting. Mm. That was, you know, like revolutionary when they did that for the first time. Uh, and oh, that's, that's a good way to picture it. So up prior to that, people would have picked grapes from the vines that were kind of tangled up in trees and things like that, yeah. growing wild. Mm-hmm. Once you put them on a trellis, you can, I guess, get better production, more grapes per vine. And it's easier it's, to do it. And then you can collect them. Yeah. You can harvest them. Of course. Okay. And so uh, gradually you have, you know, we said how, how much it was it spread around and the cultivation of cereals was replaced by the cultivation of the vine and the olive tree. That's not, olives were very important as well in ancient Greece. Um, so the production of wine was actually intensified. It, uh, it was the first time that it was not being produced not only to be consumed by the farmer and his family, but as a commercial product in order to be sold. Uh, 
So you can understand this, you can easily understand this, because this made sense since wine paid off 20 times more than cereals. So It was lucrative. Yeah. The farmers turned some of their crops over to vines. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the times they turned all of their crops into wine because wine became one of the main exported commodities of Greek maritime trade. They, they use it in order to exchange it with other products. And, uh, they, okay. Yeah. Trade, yeah. Trade. Um, in Attica, it's, it says that the transition from cereal cultivation was so rapid, imagine that the Athenians had to import cereals in order to compensate their frugal production. Because, as we said before, wine was a synonym to wealth. Okay. Trade starts to really take hold because you, in, in some cases, you had to trade, you had to ship the product just to bring in um, the cereals that you needed to feed the population. Yeah, and, and, other, and other materials. Sure. Yeah. Olive oil was very important too at that time. Um, so there would have already been a commerce existing in olive oil, I guess, shipping of olive oil and trading of olive oil. Yeah. Let's talk about the importance of trade and how trade in wine grew and how the technology changed as a result. Well, it was really it was really helpful the way they conditioned wine. They um, invented this amphorae uh, vases. Uh, that were were really narrow, and um, you, they could stack lots and lots of them uh, inside a ship. And there have been shipwrecks uh, found, discovered, that they held vast amounts of wine on them. I mean, talking about modern day, three hundred thousand bottles in a shipment in six. In a single shipment, you, you imagine how much wine was traveling all over the place in the Mediterranean? That's incredible. It's incredible, yeah. Imagine how much they pr- managed to produce and to, um, to deliver. But wine does not keep well unless it's well cared for. So obviously part of the, part of the development, part of the progress was being able to package it in a way that it would keep... I'll tell you, there are um, several opinions about how wine traveled. Um, first of all, okay, alcohol is a natural conservative that helps. Second, well, they progressed technologically, but they, they didn't have modern day methods, okay, let's be realistic. So we're not sure about the hygienic condi- conditions. Um, and that's why uh, we're sure that variations between vintages were not that important between ancient vintages the way they are nowadays. Okay. When we talk about quality of ancient wine, we mainly talk about the quality of the wine region known and, and not like you know, vintage to vintage. Also, uh, the ancients were very fond of old wine, and that's a, a myth surviving to this day. Yeah, they liked the, the old wines, but they could not tell uh, the differences between one vintage and the next. And mainly it was because of not impeccable hygiene conditions. Now, how, how did they make these things travel? Well, they put the wine in the amphora and then 
probably what they did was they put some olive oil on top so that it it, it would uh, act like uh, a seal. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it it, it would um, the, the olive oil would not mix with wine. It would be you know on top, and then what they say is maybe they uh, sealed the amphorae with pine cones. Okay. And maybe in in wax or something, or with some cloth, and they would put the wax on top. Right. And because of this, uh, the, the the use of uh, of the pine cone, and how the wine traveled and was sailing in the sea, maybe it was licking off some of the pine cone, and it would get some of the raisin taste. Yeah. And that's maybe how maybe that's where the the, the Regina came Regina. from. Yeah, that's that's you know that's um, it's one theory. An, an option. Yeah, it's yep. it's a theory. That's an interesting packaging, though, right? You've got uh, so you've got this clay amphora. It's got the pointy end at the bottom, so it fits in a ship's hold, and mm-hmm. so it can you know you can get a large number of those vessels into a ship. And then you've got this at least three layers of. Of uh, sealing. Of sealing at the top. Olive oil, the wax and pine cones, and then, uh, yeah. and then some cloth over that. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, I guess it did the trick. <laughs> it must have, because I think uh, trade in wine really took off, I guess, and, um, and it became a big part of Greece's maritime history, mm-hmm. the trade of uh, wine throughout the Mediterranean. The thing is that it was not a common product. It it brought with it a lot of symbolism, a lot of culture, a lot of philosophy, a lot of lifestyle. And um, we can we can talk about you know Greek lifestyle and wine if you like. I think we should talk about Greek <laughs> lifestyle and wine. So uh, we talked about um, we talked about ancient Greek wine. We talked about famous regions. I mean, the island of Thassos was a, a famous wine region. The island of Samos was a famous wine region of the time. Uh, Limnos, as well with uh, Muscat grapes, uh, being produced even to this day. Um, wines of Rhodos as well, wines of Icaria, Pramniosinos, uh, ancient grapes like Mavrotragano, Santorini. Of course, the name of the island was not Santorini. Back in ancient times, it was Thira. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lots, lots, lots of places. And it was being exported. But we have been talking a lot about wine and not about how it was enjoyed. That's the interesting part because uh, ancient Greeks really cared about the way they drank their wine and they really cared about what kind of wine they drank. It really made sense to them. And they didn't drink wine in order to get high, but they drank wine in order to come to uh, a good state of body and mind called enosis, coming from the Greek word enos for wine. Innocence means being so happy, like being two or three inches off the ground and having your tongue, you know, free and talking and laughing, but at the same time, remaining decent. Innocence. Innocence, yeah. Innocence. Having a good time, but not, not too good. At <laughs> not too good. <laughs> not out of control. <laughs> yeah. Just the perfect, uh, that perfect state after you've had a glass. Or two, or two, yeah.
And uh, where did they usually drink wine? Well, the foremost event was the symposium. Symposio, uh, again, a bit of etymology. It comes from two words, sin and pino, which means sin means together. Pino means drink, so symposium means I'm drinking together with friends. So it makes sense. Uh, but symposiums were not were democratic, but not democratic in an ancient kind of way. It was a man's affair. Only men. Only men, and only aristocratic men could take part. Aristocratic meaning not slaves, I mean, meaning free men having no rights to vote. Okay. Uh, they would um, normally take place in private houses, and uh, the houses actually would have the special room, uh, specially arranged, and it was called andronitis, meaning men's sitting room. Uh, it was specially arranged and decorated for symposiums. It was the best, the best room of the house with special floors, with special decorations on the walls, with special furniture, and that's where the symposiums would, would take place. So a free male person of that era, uh, if they were, I suppose, wealthy enough to have their own house, would want to have the anthro Andronitis. <laughs> Andronitis room for having your, your symposium, your wine get-together. Yeah, they would have their friends. Uh, like a I wine mean, club. Uh, yeah, it, not, but yeah. it's not based on wine, is it? No, and not... Wine was the, the, um, the lubricant for the, for the affair, but it wasn't based on just you know, getting together to drink wine. I don't think that was the point, was it? Well, it was the, the, it was the point of the second part of the symposium. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, they would first get together and they would first have dinner together. And at dinner, they, they, there wouldn't be any drinks. Or if, if there would have been drinks, it would have been, you know, little, few. Um, they, would, they would first eat meat or I don't know what they would have, but something, something formal. Uh, they would eat and then the, they would have uh, this uh, spondit. It was a sacrifice to Zeus. It was the um, um, sacramental part, let's say. The tradition had it that they would have to, um, to do that. The Athenian tradition required three spondes, actually. What is a spondee? It's a sacramental dripping of wine on the ground. Uh, one goes to the gods. It was um, for the gods. The second was to the diseased, especially to ancestors who had fallen during, you know, war. Oh, okay, the deceased, the dead. The okay. dead, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third to Zeus, the father of the gods. Um, well, this ritual was accompanied by a flute, and possibly someone was singing a hymn. Uh, and after this ceremonial part was over, the guests would wear wreaths of vine leaves on their heads. Uh, they would decorate themselves. They thought that this would protect them from getting drunk. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, they, uh, they would put on jewels like amethyst uh, because they also believed that uh, these stones protect them from, uh, against getting drunk. Amethystos, stone, amethyst, actually means 
Amethystos, not to get drunk. Oh, really? Amethyst yeah. comes from that. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, obviously, having a good meal before you get started is 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 definitely going to help. Yeah. I don't know about the jewels and the. Uh, no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it it helps looking good. <laughs> <laughs> With all your best friends, yeah. best male friends. Okay. Um, all right, and that so the first part was the meal, and then they would you know adorn themselves and and, and, and they would start drinking then. But uh, they would start drinking wine mixed with water, always. They would never, ever have wine unmixed. This was only reserved for Dionysus. Dionysus was the only one to have wine unmixed. I've heard this, and I, I don't quite get it. Um, it. Was it to get the alcohol level reduced? Mm-hmm. And, and if so, you know, what are we talking about? Are we try- talking about getting it from, you know, 12 or 13% down to... Five or six or seven percent, or do we know? Oh, we know the analogies. Uh, common analogies for water to wine were two to one. Okay. Five to one, three to one, four oh, to one. Okay, so it depends. Uh, depends. De- depends on the wine you have in the first place, and then to the kind of guests you have. Right. Were they young? Were they older? Okay. So you would, you would, yeah, you would uh, calibrate it to the event and to the people and everything. That makes sense. Yeah. The uh, the um, the Lord of the Symposium was was responsible for this. He was responsible to keep all guests according to their needs to this innocent state. Right. You want to maintain perfect innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you have this massive vase called the crater. That's where they held the wine, and according to the Symbosiarchos orders, the servants would put water in there, and they would create the mix. Uh, they, out of the, um, the crater, they would take the, um, the mixed wine with uh, spoons, and uh, they would serve it into smaller wine cups, called the kilix, and uh, they would serve it to guests. Oh. And they reach the they're enjoying conversation and they're reaching the perfect state of enesis. And um, I've heard it said that you know philosophizing and you know having intellectual conversations was a big part of this. I mean, is that really fundamental to the purpose of getting together in these symposium was to have an intelligent conversation and to exchange ideas, or is that just kind of a by- byproduct of sitting with your friends and chatting? Look, it, it would, I mean, no one really knows what exactly happened during uh, symposiums, but uh, what, what we can say is that uh, there was not only one type. For example, symposiums could be official state dinners, very, very, you know, high-end and very official, uh, between kings and ambassadors and stuff like that. Also, it would be um, a friends get-together, uh, also, maybe they had some dancers and acrobats over. They had some flute players. They had some uh, girls also, maybe. As, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it depended. It depended, you know. It depended on, on lots of things. But um, from, from ancient literature, the, uh, the form that has been passed on to us was that you know really educated people like uh, Plato and Socrates would uh, um, 
um, animate themselves by reciting, reciting literature or getting witty with each other or getting funny with each other or uh, discussing about politics or... I don't know, theatrical trends or gossiping. It could be anything. But uh, it really, I mean, I think that you could have as many forms in symposium as... Uh, as there are personality types. Exactly. As there I are mean, opportunities it, to socialize. It was a depiction of society, actually. Well, you painted a great picture. I'm starting to get the idea. It's, um, it's a, There's a sort of a formal structure around getting together to socialize and talk and share time with friends. Yeah. In essence, symposiums were dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure, be it intellectual, social, or even romantic at some point. It was a release valve for instincts and vices. The mix of wine and water consumed during the symposium was for ancient philosophers a metaphor or a symbol for vice and virtue coexisting in human nature and in society in general. Plato considered wine to be a test for oneself. If one succumbs to passions that it awakes, anger, lust, arrogance, ignorance, uh, greed, or cowardness, he believed that wine was given to humans as a medicine that bestows modesty in the soul and health and vigor to the body. And that's, you know, that's the Greek way, half in the middle. We could, uh, we could also say that symposium was a picture of Athenian democracy as well. Everybody was drinking of the same wine, if you come to think of it. Even the sitting arrangement was democratic. There were no better distinguished seats or worse ones. And everyone was sitting in a way that everyone could see each other. Uh, this thing was not the same in ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, they, they also had symposiums, or kind of, where there were discrimination in sitting arrangements and in wine quality being served to the guests. Each guest was entitled to the wine according to his social place. That thing was not so in ancient Greece, and I think it's important to stress it. Very democratic. Yeah. From the home of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, a last thing we should stress is the extent to, to where this idea of wine, of moderation, of philosophy, of, uh, of getting to know oneself. I mean, because wine eases, you know, the pains of everyday life and makes you uh, want to talk and makes you speak out of your soul. Well, all this... Uh, package, let's say, was all exported by the Greek ships to other countries, to Italy, to northern, to southern France, and maybe even to Spain and Portugal. Uh, by the fifth century, it was being exported to all of those countries, to Egypt, to Crimea, and north, even to the Danube area. We're talking about mass-scale commerce. Uh, as I explained before, there have been uh, vast quantities found on ancient shipwrecks. So what they did, the Greeks spread not only wine but and wine growing, uh, but they also brought the know-how to Sicily and southern Italy and southern France. Don't forget that Marseille was a Greek colony. And uh, maybe the Spanish and the Portuguese learned wine growing from the Greeks and not the Phoenicians. We 
don't really know there. We don't really know who uh, who was the father there. But um, uh, what I want to say is that, except for the plants and of the technological and scientific know-how, it was the civilization that was being brought to those countries and colonies. And um, that's the base of modern-day Western civilization as well. That is so eye-opening. I never made that connection. So the whole concept of symposium and a civilized sharing of wine in a place where you could talk and uh, uh, you know, be open with, um, with your peers. When the Greeks went out and exported the vine, to other places and exported winemaking technology. They also exported these concepts of Greek culture, the, the concepts, uh, the aspects of their culture that, that had developed uh, and, and uh, made them such a civilized nation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's not only the product, but it's this, the conviviality, the, um, the getting together, in a decent way, in a civilized way, uh, wanting to exchange ideas, wanting to ex- exchange news, wanting to exchange, you know, friendship and uh, sentiment and all that stuff. I can't believe that I'm sitting in a wine store in Thessaloniki, having a wonderful history lesson <laughs> on Greece and, and Greek wines. This is a great place to come. My cava is. Um, can I come back? Can we? Can I come back to my cabin? We'll do the next episode on modern anytime. Greece and <laughs> modern Greek wines. Anytime, anytime you want. Uh, Anna, thanks so much for the time. Oh, it was a pleasure. I just hope that um, people listening to this will find it interesting. I just hope it wasn't too historical for for novices, <laughs> and that you found some you know tips and things you've never heard before and now that you know a little bit of the history of wine the next time you're having a glass of wine in front of you you'll think of all the you know the ancient companies that enjoy this and maybe thought of the same things you're thinking right now and it re- I think it's really moving it's something that ties you to the earth and ties you to uh, the place uh, but also to it's transcending time in a way. And it's really what makes us humans. Okay, how did you like that discussion with Anna? What, isn't she great? Uh, I thought she did such a wonderful job of not only bringing out Greek wine history in a way that's fascinating and interesting, but also bringing out the way the culture of wine drinking has evolved and how it informs how we drink wine today and our wine culture. Um, if you're interested in visiting... Anna's uh, website. She's at www.mycava.gr. That's M-Y-C-A-V-A dot G-R. Fascinating website. Lots of wines from Greece and from other places, but you can learn a bit about Greek wines on her website. Um, we were drinking Mavro Tragano from the Hatsidakis estate on Santorini at the beginning of that episode. And Anna talks about Mavrotragano and its history and its uh, resurrection from near extinction. Santorini is a fascinating place, producing very distinctive wines. And uh, you may be familiar with Assyrtico from Santorini. That's the white grape, or the white wine that has sort of become the signature for Santorini and makes glorious white wines very, very distinctive and full of character. 
So Mavrotragonal may be the counterpart to Assyrtiko from, uh, from Santorini, the red counterpart. Mavrotragonal makes a very opulent and age-worthy wine that many people compare to Nebbiolo. So these two wines, Assyrtiko uh, for white and Mavrotragonal for red, could be described as the signature wines of Santorini. It's worth noting that another very acclaimed Santorini wine producer, Sigalas, also contributed to saving Mavrotragono from extinction. Sigalas uh, makes a very good Mavrotragono and makes very, very good Assyrtiko. And of course, uh, Hatsidaki's estate makes very good wines on both of those fronts. Their, their Assyrtiko is quite famous. New podcast episodes from The Wine Beat are coming up. Uh, we did a tour of Greece and southern Italy recently, so there's several more podcasts to come. I hope you'll tune in for those. Check in regularly at www.winebeatpod, that's W-I-N-E-B-E-A-T-P-O-D.com, and uh, you'll find us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher Radio. That's it for now. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye. (laughs) 